Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Our colleagues at SCM Press are holding an online day conference on the 30th of January titled How to Rage, Theology, Activism and the Church. There's an inspiring lineup of activist theologians who include Andrew Greystone, Hannah Malcolm and Azariah France-Williams who've all been on this podcast before. To find out more and to book tickets, go to scmpress.himsam.co.uk forward slash events. On this week's podcast, I'm joined by Simon Park, author, speaker and consultant, who wrote a regular column for the Church Times for 11 years. His recent books include An Imagined Life of Julian of Norwich, The Secret Testament of Julian, published by White Crow Books, and The Soldier, The Gowler, The Spy and Her Lover, published by Marlborough House. This week we're talking about Simon's latest book, Gospel Rumours of Love. It's a work of historical fiction which is published on the 1st of February by White Crow Books. It's available to pre-order from the Church Times Bookshop for £10.79 and you can read an extract in the 22nd of January issue of the Church Times. The book is narrated in the first person through the eyes of Jesus, Yeshua, Mary Magdalene, Miriam and Mary the mother of Jesus. The Bishop of Gloucester, Rachel Truig, describes the book as a poignant and mystical story of love, which is likely to raise more questions than answers. But then that is not unlike the stories Jesus himself once told. Simon Park, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. On your website, you you write that weighed down by agreed statements of belief about him, Jesus can become distant, a rather institutionalised figure, and no one lives well in an institution. And has, has that been your experience of Jesus? Well, I think, it, yes, I think it has been. I think it has been. So, I mean, I think it's very difficult for an institution to look after Jesus, the memory of Jesus, because obviously Jesus pulled down institutions. No institution was left standing, Jesus. And uh, so it's very hard, I think, for an institution to be to honour the memory of a figure who ripped it down institutions. So I think it's really difficult for the church. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't envy the church in trying to do it. But of course, all institutions are geared to their own survival, whereas Jesus wasn't geared to his own survival. And so in a way, there's a there's a mismatch. So he, he, he can, he has obviously been weighed down by creedal statements. You know, we don't make creedal statements about anybody else. We just relate to them as they are. But Jesus is behind this sort of paywall of creedal statements. And so I think he can become distant and slightly too disembodied. And I think what happens then, you know, he becomes sort of an avatar for, um, you know, uh, niche faith adventures. Uh, and we've lost the person. We've just got this avatar. And, yeah, I mean, you see it, obviously, we're seeing it at the moment hugely, you know, with the American far right and evangelicals who've managed to make Trump Jesus. I mean, one avatar has become another avatar. Um, but I think he's become an avatar for sort of niche faith adventures all across the world, even in England. You know, he, he becomes he becomes what we want him to be. So can we talk about um, gospel rumours of love, which you've described as your attempt to inhabit the familiar gospel narrative, which we know so well yet may not know at all you talk about what, what you're trying to do in this book was it to recover a sense of the human jesus yes i think it was and i, and I think one of the i think there's two things but i think one of the ones was to to find his voice again that was very important because obviously the gospels give, give him a different voice you know the the voice in the gospel of john is nothing like the, the voice in matthew mark and luke and the god the voice in the gospel of thomas is dissimilar from them all and 
And then the voice in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene is more similar to the Gospel of John. So, I mean, there are a lot of voices out there. And I think uh, that I think that's can be confusing for us. And it may be sort of subconsciously that we don't. It's hard to tune into someone if we actually don't know what their voice is. And so I think for me, whether I found his voice, of course, is another question. But I wanted to find a voice for Jesus. And that was the hardest challenge, really, as a writer, to find an authentic voice to give him. That was the same and didn't change, um, as in a sense, it does change weekly in the church readings because of the different gospels used. Uh, and I think the other thing was to put him, I wanted to put him in relationships. I mean, one one person who read the book in, in manuscript form said to, just said to me, I mean, he was a churchgoer, a regular churchgoer, said, I didn't really realise Jesus had relationships. I'd never thought about that. And of course, it's a fair point because we don't really we don't really think about that. We just think about his wise words, but we don't actually think that here was a human figure who had difficult, very difficult relationships with various people around him. You know, like you know, disciples, uh, his family, um, quite apart from Pharisees and Herod and whatever. But I mean, just that well, there was ongoing relationships in his hometown in Nazareth. Relationships with his family, which aren't really ever explored, but actually I think are very important in Jesus's life, and also obviously the disciples, who were a bunch of wasters, um, but uh, also you know lots of loveliness about them as well. But really, whether they were a support to Jesus, I think, is an open question. So I think, yeah, finding his voice was very important, giving Jesus a voice, and also putting him in human relationships because we all are. We all, we are, we live our lives in difficult relationships. Some are going well, some are not going well. And I think it was important to put Jesus in that, you know, in that context. And I suppose the way, the way the gospels portray Jesus often going around teaching and there's, there's a ministry. So is, is there often perhaps an absence of the day-to-day and particularly the relationships in the day-to-day life of Jesus? Absolutely. And that is so important. And I think, you know, you, you put that well, because in the end, you know, we don't judge we don't judge a vicar from their sermons. We judge a vicar from who they are and how they function. You know, uh, if you know in the parish. And it, to be honest, it doesn't really matter if they're not that good in the pulpit if they are good with the relationships. But obviously, with Jesus, it's all focused, as you say, on him going around being a wise and brilliant teacher, and not really on his relationships, which again I think is a slightly distant and you know, a distancing, distancing uh, effect that that has. But of course, he spent most of his life in relationships. How did you go about researching the book? I mean, you've talked about the Gospels, you, you drill those, but were there other perhaps non-canonical sources or other writings? The one really, I used, I used the four canonical Gospels and the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, mainly. I think that my other research was really more about Israel at that time. It was more about sort of historical research about what was, what did it, what were the politics at the time, what were that sort of thing. Because obviously, you know, if it's in a historical fiction and it is a work of fiction, you know, you obviously want to make the most of the gaps. And I think, I think what I was interested in was, you know, going and having a look at some of the gaps. You know, what, what did it, what was it like, you know, for Jesus to leave home? I think, you know, leaving home, that's a massive thing. What, what was that like? You know, uh, um, what was it like to wake up in a tomb after (laughs) after you've been crucified you know there are big holes in the gospel narrative which i wanted to sort of explore um and then you know the effects of growing up in nazareth obviously nazareth was a uh, a hugely racist town called itself you know more jewish than jerusalem um hated the phoenicians well hated anyone who wasn't a jew you know what effect did that have on jesus and i think you know in one or two gospel instances actually we see it did have an effect and not necessarily a good one so i suppose there are lots of 
gaps. You know, Hilary Mantel says that historical fiction is all about the gaps. You know, you can re you research and research and research. So everything you can get right, you must get right. But then you go to the gaps you know, where perhaps some interesting truths lie. Sometimes with the historical Jesus research, people talk about um, how scholars can often um, construct a Jesus kind of in their own image. I mean, did you have to be careful about constructing a fictional Jesus that was too drawn from your own um, influences or preconceptions? I think, yeah, I think I am guilty. Of, I will be guilty of that. I will be guilty of that because I think it's humanly impossible not to do that. And so, you know, I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that at the outset. I think we're, all, we're always looking. I mean, but, you know, to say, I think it's the same in every biography that's ever written. We find people choose someone to write about and they find themselves in there and in their best bits. And so I think I am guilty of that. And I think every, every reader, every reader, of the, but of course, you know, the Gospels are guilty of that. Perhaps even more so, perhaps even more so than me, I would dare say, because they are writing with a very particular agenda and they are cutting things out that they don't like or don't want or don't serve them. And I'm, I'm trying not to cut anything out. I, I'm not conscious of cutting anything out, but I do have my own agenda. But I think the gospel writers had more of an agenda. And we may say, well, it was a very right and proper agenda, we may say that, but um, they certainly wrote with an agenda, you know, and that's, the agenda is not hard to see. It's not hard to see Peter telling Mark what to write and what not to write. It's not hard to see God, John trying to put a sort of victorious, spell on everything that everything is going swimmingly and everything is according to scripture and everything is really good and just as it should be i mean these you know these are particular ways to write but they are they are all with an agenda i'm presuming by doing your research into the first century israel and everything you're um that that that, that can be a way to check your own biases or your own or any anachronisms that might occur yeah, I think I think you have to. Yes, I think you just have to be ruthless with yourself. I mean, I think noticing being aware of our prejudice is is the most important thing for a writer. It's even more important than historical research, I think, <laughs> um, because if you don't notice your prejudice, if you don't notice your prejudice, you can do all the historical research you like and, you, and you'll miss it. But uh, yeah, I, I think every writer has to hold their hand up at the beginning and say, I am prejudiced. I have an agenda. And, and what is your agenda with this because obviously you're writing fiction which is quite different to being an evangelist writing a gospel which I mean quite explicitly written to persuade people to believe or to inspire them to believe but what what would you say your agenda as a writer of fiction is in this context? I think at the beginning he says it's it is not to be doubted a man called Jesus lived and died the more interesting question is whether he died and lived and how he believed and loved along the way it's not the purpose of fiction to provide answers only to awaken possibilities from their slumbers as Picasso reminds us, art is a lie that makes us realise the truth. I think I would very much like people to ponder this remarkable figure of Jesus and the energies that he contained, because I think they are. I think they are remarkable. One of the most formative books for me I read about, I don't, I don't know how long ago, about 35 years ago, probably, it's called Lost Christianity by Jacob Needleman. And he's talking about how Christianity has lost energies, lost strong energies, you know, it has become little niche adventures for people. And uh, I think we have. And I think you can't spend time with Jesus without realising this person had massive resilience inside him. And I was really interested, you know, so telling it from the first person, uh, which I do, I wanted not only to hear what he said, but also 
where did he get what he said from inside him and how did he have such um, such resilience such strength such those really powerful energies which are you know really dissipated i think in the christian community today so there was an attempt i think to try to access the energy of this man can i just ask about the hints and clues in the storyline about jesus that you seek to develop I mean, what are some of those hints and clues you may have alluded to some already well yes maybe i mean i think you know i think Although, you know, I've known Jesus a long time, nothing, and I think nothing quite prepared me for his rage, actually. <laughs> he, he was a very angry man, and the intensity of the opposition around him, it must have been hugely difficult being Jesus. And I don't know where, I mean, I don't think he really could take his issues to anyone, probably. But living with that intensity of opposition, because truth, you know, truth will get angry in this world. And I think probably nothing prepared me quite for that. So that's something, that's something, um, I think that surprised one or two people in, who read it as a manuscript as well. Um, I, I mean, on the other side of that is loneliness, the, the loneliness of Jesus, not not held by his family closely, not held by anyone really closely, um, really supporting others, leading others, but the loneliness of the long distance runner we know with Jesus. And the, yeah, so that was that's quite a thing. I mean, I think the women in the story are very, very important. So it's a first... I tell the story through three voices, um, first person of Jesus, but also Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I really I wanted to bring the women into the story because I think the Gospels don't do women justice. You can see they've been edited out and their story is not told. And so Joanna is a very important figure in this novel, as is uh, Mary Magdalene. And we hear we hear from them, you know, quite a lot. So I think trying to put women back into the story because they clearly were there, but they've been edited out uh, as not important people. And I wanted to sort of broaden out the Jesus story to all the different sorts of people who came in. And it wasn't just 12 men, it was many other people. So there was a, I think one of these, yeah, one of the, uh, in the story, we, we discovered that Jesus was surrounded by not just 12 men, but a, a wider, much wider community of people, which included very significant women in his story. We wanted to do them justice. I think also, you know, the just sheer impossibility of Jesus and institutions, you know, and his relationship with the temple. And, you know, when he'll say, you know, he'll basically say, you're more likely to find God splitting wood than you are to find God in the temple. And how could you say that? How could you say that in Israel? You know, are you mad? I mean, what, what did his disciples think of him? You think, look, we, we can go with you so far, but really, if you're going to say that, it's thank you and good night. Just like when he says, you know, who is my mother? Who is my mother? I mean, who is my mother? Again, how can you say that in Israel? No, teacher, we've, we've tried to support you, but if you're going to say things like that, who is my mother, who are my brothers? You know, highly offensive. Um, so I think it's, the offensiveness in Jesus and you know, we talk about Jesus as a figure of love and he is he is but love is very upsetting sometimes and I think maybe we've we've domesticated love a little bit and that's one of the themes possibly of the story. Can I ask about Jesus's sense of humor you, you describe him on your website as a prophet with a huge if dry sense of humor does that come across in the gospels do you think or is that something you were trying to develop? Well, I think it's hinted at in the Gospels. I wouldn't want to make too much of it. I wouldn't want to make too much of it in the Gospels. I mean, he was a play actor. I mean, I think, you know, in, the, in, the, in a scene which actually I, I use 
in in the um, because in in the in in the, in the novel I do use some set scenes in the gospel. So one of the set scenes I use is the woman caught in adultery, and what he wrote in the sand, and I think that's you know that's really dry. I think it's dry. He's he's playing with them, uh, and I, and that feels really and and I mean in the novel I suggest what he did write in the sand, where he's just he's just playing with them. I suppose the thing is that truth, it's the truth is funny. When satire really works, it's just because it's true. There's enough truth in it to make it funny. And I think Jesus was speaking, you know, Jesus was just telling the truth all the time. When he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs or when he called Herod a fox. I mean, for me, this is comedy. I mean, this is just run of the mill satire, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's a great phrase, whitewashed tombs. And, you know, when he's tirade against the Pharisees about what they do. I mean, he's very funny, but I mean, obviously at the time, no one was laughing because either his, either his followers were terrified of what he was saying or the, or the people he was talking to were just getting angry. So no one was laughing at him. No one was saying, <laughs> you know, you're a car, Jesus. No one was saying that. But I just think the savagery, the savagery of his attacks was very funny. And, you know, we'd enjoy it today because we know all about satire. And if, if he was speaking today, we'd actually, I think we'd cue into the humour much more probably than we did at the time. So that there are parts of your book you'd say which people will find quite funny. Will that be a surprise to them? I hope so. I hope I hope there's quite a lot of funny bits in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think once you let once you let once you you know you let the truth out to play, it's very funny, and it it, it and obviously it's also hurtful, but it is funny. But I think he used. I also when he's trying to. I think in the piece that Church Times are going to um, use this week. Again, he's trying to make a community out of the disciples who all hate each other. You know, I mean, none of them have got natural ties to each other. They're all very different people. And he's having to use comedy a lot, I think, just to hold this strange group of people together. And so, yeah, yeah, comedy is very important in the book, actually. I mean, there's a lot of rage, but I hope also sometimes you will laugh out loud because truth is very funny because most of life is nonsense. Perhaps just before we end, um... I'm going to ask you a minute to to read a, a bit from the book, but um, has has writing this book changed your view of Jesus? Yeah, well, gosh, I don't know if it's changed it. I don't know if it has changed it, but I I don't think I could admire, admire him more than I do, and I think I think writing it has only increased that. Here was a figure who who just did cut through the nonsense, the nonsense of family life, the nonsense of followers of having disciples, the nonsense of power. He just cuts the nonsense and the intensity of the opposition against him, whether from family or followers or, or, or opposition, was remarkable. And how I think, you know, resilience is a common word today. But I mean, if you want, you know, if you want to learn about resilience, understand how Jesus worked and how he survived and what he believed. And I hope that in the book I, I, I do offer um, some ideas about that. But yeah, so I think I couldn't admire him more. And having spent time with him. Somebody who couldn't admire him more, couldn't admire him more, even more, probably. Thanks. Would you, would you like to read a short excerpt from the book? So this is so this is the beginning of the this is the beginning of the story. And just to say the characters, like in, in the book, Jesus is called Yeshua, which is obviously the Hebrew. And Peter, um, Simon Peter is called Rocky, and uh, Mary Magdalene is called Miriam. So this is the opening chapter. It's called Yeshua Beside the Sea. And it's and it's spoken in first person as Yeshua speaking, Jesus speaking. Perhaps others will write of this. They say they will. 
They said all sorts of things on the beach this morning amid their astonishment at seeing. Rocky promised a book. I will write a book of all this. This must be a book. Though he cannot write, as Levi pointed out. You can clean barnacles off the keel and stand steady in a storm, but you cannot write. Rocky does say things. He has never been measured with his mouth, no hand on the tiller there and caught by every wind. Some say he speaks before he thinks, though I say he just speaks. There is no obvious thought on display. Though their astonishment, bright-eyed and frantic, scarce equals mine. I laugh so much inside, I cannot quiet it. I laugh as they leap from the boat, splashing and wading towards me, half swimming. I cannot believe it, this scene before my eyes. I am making a fire. The fire is all I need, it is everything. Smouldering wood, smoke and embers, heat in the morning chill, and the splash and the rush towards me, the wet sunlight, these mad idiots, my friends. It's him, it's him, they shout. Yeshua, is it you? It cannot be Yeshua, don't be so stupid. Yeshua, it cannot be you. I am ripped apart by amazement and joy. Amazement that I'm here, that this is so, and such joy at seeing the sea and these wasters again. They once ran away, it comes back to me, how they all disappeared. Though I have lost my capacity for blame, truly. But we are not where we were. Gethsemane feels a long time ago, and now a different space unfolds. They run towards me, soaked through with Galilee wash and shouting, arguing as they approach, and I get up to greet them, to hug and to hold, as close to friends as I shall have, though Miriam is not here, and maybe that is best. So where are the fish, I ask? We cannot eat surprise. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.